Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last time we were together on a Sunday evening, last, uh, not, not last week, but two weeks ago, walking through the first epistle of Paul to the church at Thessalonica, we spoke about the obligation of those in the church to love and to support the one or the ones that labor among them, admonishing them and, and um, teaching them. Uh, specifically, we would call them the pastor, the elder, the bishop that it is the duty of the believers in the church to rally around these men who are laboring among you, overseeing you in the Lord and admonishing you. Willing submission to the authority and leadership of the pastors of any uh, given church is a subset of a much broader doctrine on church authority and accountability, which has, especially uh, in Western culture today, fallen quite out of favor with Christians. The concept of church authority is based upon the essential need in each of our lives for personal spiritual accountability. That as God's people, God wants us to be submitting ourselves one to another. And that a part of God's design in this process is that each believer would find and then would subsequently submit themselves unto the authority of a local body of believers. And while the idea of church accountability, church authority generally takes upon itself a negative connotation, in other words, when we think about ideas of accountability and authority, what might pop into your mind is church discipline, right? Uh, while, while that is kind of that first thing that we think about, this is by far not the only thing that a church of spiritually accountable individuals can offer one to another. It's not just about us holding each other accountable and providing negative consequences. It's about spiritual support. It's about spiritual love. It's about prayer. It's about lifting one another up and pushing one another to be better as Hebrews calls it, provoking one another unto love and good works. Before we talk about our actual verse this evening, we're just going to dwell on the one. I'd like us to take some time to consider the larger idea of church accountability and church submission. And I'm going to talk about two particular points before we, before we step into the verse itself. And the first point is this, that biblical submission to a church is an expectation upon every believer. Biblical submission to a church, a local church body, is an expectation upon every believer. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 through verse 21. He says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So in these first couple of verses here, Paul states that we, as believers, God intends us to walk with circumspection, with, with care, looking at our steps as we go. The idea being that we need to watch to make sure we're not going to trip up on something. The idea being that we need to, to watch where we're going. My, my little girls are at a place in their lives where they're not very good at that yet. At watching where they're going. If, if there's toys in front of them or if there's a route 
out in the yard, they're, they're probably going to trip over it. Because while they know how to walk, they do not know yet how to walk with circumspection, with care, considering their steps, considering where their steps are falling so that they can stay on their feet, so that they don't twist an ankle, those sorts of things. And the scriptures tell us that God intends us to walk with, wow, that's hard to read, to walk with circumspection. He says, don't, not being unwise, but rather understanding the will of the Lord. He continues, and he says this in verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So he paints this contrast. You have the idea of being filled with some substance that is thus compelling your thoughts and actions. And he says, don't be filled with something else that is compelling your thoughts and actions, whether that in this particular case be wine, or if we uh, bring that out to the broader context, we could say drugs, we could, um, uh, all sorts of things that could compel us. And he says, don't be filled with those things, but much rather be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God should be the thing that is compelling your actions, that is compelling your thoughts, that is driving you in the way that you are walking. And then Paul begins another list, a list of expectations in verse 19 as he's writing to this church. And he says this, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. This is a verse written to a church, literally speaking to yourself, speaking to one another. Not just speaking to yourself, but speaking to yourselves. The, the body as a whole in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. It's a verse of mutual accountability, of mutual teaching, that the body of Christ is intended to be using songs, using praise unto the Lord to teach one another. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? How, how do you know that that's what this verse is saying? Well, because we have a parallel passage that makes it even more clear. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so we see it even more clearly in this par parallel passage that we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, a an element of teaching one another, exhorting one another, admonishing one another, Songs, hymns, spiritual songs being a medium through which it is done. A means by which God's people allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, consistently. And he continues, and specifically, uh, these last two verses are the verses that we, we are, are moving toward here. It's our point. He says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So two more corporate expectations. The first one was that we uh, would uh, sing, admonish, teach one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The next one, that we would be a body that is uh, working on thanksgiving together. That, that we, are, we would be a body that is holding one another accountable to be thankful unto the Lord for the things He's given to us. And then finally, verse 21, the third expectation that we would submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. 
And so we begin to see this expectation that the church would be submissive one to another, that you and I would be mutually submissive in our relationship, accountable one to another. But the New Testament is filled with verses that reflect church authority and accountability over individual believers. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here we see the expectation that a man who claims Jesus Christ, but does not obey the Scriptures, but is walking contrary to the teachings of God's Word, should be identified and should be separated from in personal fellowship. Now, this does not mean separated from as an acquaintance. Paul specifically says, don't count him as an enemy. He doesn't become an enemy, but rather he becomes a wayward brother that you are to admonish, that you are to correct, that the body of Christ is intended to admonish. So, we separate from him as a spiritual associate. We separate from him in, in, in the spiritual fellowship arena, but not necessarily casting him out onto the street and counting him as an enemy. As a matter of fact, not dogmatically doing that. Galatians chapter 6 gives us another interesting admonition. He says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. These two verses really are fascinating. They state that when a brother is overtaken in a fault, in other words, when a a brother is in a place of sin, falls into the consequences of a devastating sin, Those who are spiritual in the congregation, he says, ye which are spiritual, speaking to a body of believers, you that are are in in a place where you are in a right relationship with God, where you are walking in the Spirit of God, where you have that spiritual strength, restore him. Do what is necessary to help that believer find repentance, find forgiveness, find spiritual restoration with God and man. He says, also, as you do this, do it in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, because, you know, the next one that falls might be you. Lest we think ourselves above that, beyond that in our Christian lives. Restore him with a spirit of meekness. And then he says this in verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Can you see the deep expectation of spiritual accountability, spiritual submission, spiritual support? That the assembling of believers is not simply meant to be some loose organization of born-again Christians who rally under the teaching of one man or under common interests or because we think alike. The assembling of believers is intended to be a family, a family of individuals who have purposefully and willingly submitted themselves to one another for accountability, and then to the elders of the church for teaching. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. That's verse 9. So important is this accountability that it brings with it expectations and consequences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the circumstance is, you recall, Paul begins by saying, I've written unto you before, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the problem was that there was a man in the church who was in an adulterous relationship with his mother-in-law, if you recall from our time preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so Paul says here, that he wrote unto them before not to company with fornicators. And we're going to skip some verses here, but he says, yet not altogether fornicators of this world. Don't separate from the fornicators of this world because if you did that, then you couldn't, you'd have to come out of the world, right? You, you, you couldn't interact with anyone. But he says this in verse 11. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, if someone in the church that calls himself a brother, that claims the name of Christ, puts himself in a place where he is regularly and consistently living a life of wickedness and a life of sin, he says, this is the context that I was speaking to you. With such and one, know not to eat. And this begins to form our understanding of ecclesiastical separation. Why is it that when all the churches on Resurrection Sunday or all the churches uh, at other parts of the year have their ecumenical service down at the park, we're not a part of that. We don't go join with them on that day. Well, the reason is because there are a great number of people in that group calling themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, but are walking contrary to the Word of God. And that is why we have a church membership. That is why we do what we do here, so that we can protect our church body from error. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. So it's not to say that we can't go to the park and start interacting with unbelievers or believers alike. But when it comes to spiritual authority and spiritual submission, we need to up the ante. Paul tells the church not to fellowship with a believer who is openly, unrepentantly living in sin. But notice what he goes on to say at that last little phrase, verse 13. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He is calling on that church to exercise biblical discipline against that man and as a church to exercise their authority to remove him from their fellowship. This is the idea of church accountability. This is the idea of church authority. Let me give you one more on our overhead and then I'm going to give you one more that's not on our overhead because we just talked about it. So we might as well um, go through. James 5. James 5, verses 13 through 16. The Bible says this, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if any have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Look at the dynamics of the church relationship as presented in James. That if a man is sick among them, that the elders of the church should meet together, anoint him with oil, pray over him, and that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. That he will be raised up and that if there were sins that compelled that illness, those would be 
forgiven him. We won't get into all of that today, but someday I'll preach through James and we'll talk through that in full. But this is some major authority, isn't it? I mean, this is, this, this is pretty serious stuff here. But then notice what else James says. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that ye may be healed. The church is intended to be the setting in which you as a believer confess your faults. Not to a priest as a means of absolution spiritually. You're not confessing your sins because we have to collectively forgive you your sins if they're to be forgiven. Nothing like that. You are, uh, the Scriptures tell us in First Peter that you are a royal priesthood and holy nation. Uh, that, that, that you have the authority to go directly to God. You don't have to go through a medium. You don't have to go through a priest. We have one intercessor. There's one intercessor between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. However, when you open yourself up to the accountability and support of the church when the body is doing as they ought, that's what you'll find. Support. Prayer. Spiritual healing. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 10, I don't have it up on the overhead. Verse 21, Paul says this, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us be sanctified. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he that is faithful... For He is faithful, that promised. And let us consider one another, we talked about at the beginning, to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, because of what we have in Christ, live holy before God. Hold fast your profession. Declare your profession. And third, be busy provoking one another to love and good works. Be busy assembling together and exhorting one another to do right. Be busy strengthening one another in order that we can hold fast our profession of faith. In order that we can draw near with a true heart unto God as we exhort one another unto godliness. All of these verses reveal the expectation that you as a believer should be willingly submitted to the spiritual authority and accountability of a church. This is not a suggestion. This is biblical necessity. Our second point before we move into our passage this evening, no member of the body, no member of the church is mutually exclusive. No member of the church is mutually exclusive. God wants you as a part of the body and one of the reasons why is that you are not an, a spiritual island to yourself. You have gifts, but you don't have some gifts. You're not, you're not a little spiritual island. You're not mutually exclusive. And even when you join a church, you're not mutually exclusive. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. Individual members, but so deeply intertwined. So deeply intertwined. The reason we need to be in mutual relationships of accountability, submission, support, and service is because there is not 
one member of the church that can do it all. No one believer is gifted in every way so that he can become a one-man wrecking crew for Christ. I need you and you need me. Christ has chosen those that He desires to be in this body and He's chosen you to be in this body because He knows that you can contribute something to this body. Because He knows that this body needs you. And if we need each other in order to be effective for Christ in the city of Buffalo and beyond, then we all need to be accountable one to another specifically spiritually, to ensure that there's no sin in the camp, to ensure that we can be effective as a body of Christ, and we need to be submitting to one another so that we have more spiritual strength together because we will have more spiritual strength together than we ever will apart. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. Paul would teach a similar lesson to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses... um, Well, technically verses uh, 12 through 27. We'll just read verse 12 and then 23 through 27. Paul says this, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body, or of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Skipping to verse 23. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, less needful, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness for our comely parts have no need. But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. We've given the illustration before. If you remember my Corinthian series, I talked about this at length. If I looked at my fingers or I looked at my kneecaps and I said, you know, kneecaps, I just don't feel like... I feel like someone else can compensate for what you do. So you're gone. Pop those things out. It's going to hurt the body. If I hurt my ankle, if I twist my ankle, it's not just my ankle that suffers, is it? Now, my ankle is the part that hurts, but the whole leg is having to bear the burden of that. The other leg is having to compensate for that. My back might start hurting because of the way I'm trying to compensate. Now I can't concentrate as well because the aching in my ankle is causing my mind to not be able to focus on what it needs to. My eyes might get a little blurry or tear, tears in my eyes and, and now I can't see as well because of the tears in my eyes. All of these things are happening because of the ankle's pain. This is the body of Christ. We ought to be so deeply connected one to another in mutual account, accountability and support and love that for one to hurt is for all to hurt. For one to rejoice is for all to rejoice. If one person is spiritually not where they need to be, the body should feel it, should understand it, should recognize it, and should work to heal it. The reason why we need to be in mutual relationships is because we can't do it all. We need one another. Paul goes on and he says, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Where one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. He says, now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Do you see God's plan? Mutual care, mutual accountability, mutual love, mutual responsibility, mutual pain. 
mutual rejoicing. When one family member hurts, the family hurts. When one part of the body is in pain, the body feels the pain. When one part of the body of, of, uh, is in sin or is in need, the whole body should be a part of the solution because that's God's design. Biblical submission to a church is an expectation upon every believer. Biblical um, submission. No member of the body, number two, is intended to be mutual exclusive. I've mentioned already that these concepts have fallen deeply out of favor with contemporary Christian culture. Even in our little church, we have very few of its attendees who are members. No one likes accountability because accountability takes humility. Effort. You have to go out of your way a little bit. But God wants accountability among His saints. And far be it from the church to deny our Savior what He as our head desires. Far be it from us to refuse to submit to the will of Jesus Christ. Now with this understanding of biblical submission and uh, church accountability and authority in mind, let's step into our passage finally this evening. Uh, Let me turn back there. And notice what he says in chapter 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. As a church, we ought to be doing four specific things mentioned here. Warning the unruly, comforting the feeble-minded, supporting the weak, being patient toward all men. Let's look at those four actions individually. First, warn them that are unruly. The word unruly here is literally, in the Greek, it literally means insubordinate, which is a fancy word to mean that they refuse to submit themselves to authority. Now remember the context. This just this comes right after verses 12 and 13, where Paul exhorted the church to know them which labor among you, who exhort you, who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly. Paul is exhorting the brethren to love their pastors. There can be no doubt then within this context that Paul is commanding the church to warn those who are resisting the authority that God has ordained for the church, the authority of these pastors, and to warn them that this is a dangerous path. At best, dangerous. At worst, sinful. Now, the idea of warning them is actually a fairly light idea here. It literally means to put in mind, to caution. It's not to, to, to rebuke. It's not to cast out, but simply to caution them. It's not that you can't question the leadership of a church elder. In fact, you should always be comparing Scripture with Scripture. You should always be comparing what is taught against the Word of God. Pastors are not the final authority on anything in the church. The Bible is the final authority. So, I I am not the end-all, be-all of this church. God's Word is the end-all, be-all of this church, which means I can do things wrong. And you shouldn't sit there and say, oh, look, pastor's doing that wrong. That's unbiblical. Let me just sit here and watch him do something unbiblical. It, it, It shouldn't be that way. But you do need to know that if your pastor has been properly called and ordained by the church, then he has authority. 
which means you need to be careful if you are going to step outside of that authority for some reason. You need to be very, very careful. If said authority in the church is biblically qualified and ordained and is indeed doing what God has led him to do, what God, if he is teaching properly, if he is leading properly, then to resist his authority is to resist God's ordained leadership. It's to resist God. So if you're going to resist the authority of God's leader, you had better be confident that you're standing on solid biblical ground. And it was the responsibility of God's people to identify and to warn those who had this attitude toward leadership. Remember we talked about two weeks ago that um, the, the elders of this church may not have been the most established believers. Paul had to come. People got saved, ordained elders, and then he had to run for his life in Thessalonica. He had to run to Berea and they even chased him to Berea and ran him out of Berea. He had to run all the way out of the region to get away from these people. And so, and then immediately after that, persecution and martyrdom followed for the church. So you could imagine the discouragement and the disgruntled nature of the people in this church probably looking at their leaders and saying, these people don't know what they're doing. They don't know enough. They're not, whatever. And Paul's saying, you better be careful. Warn the unruly church. Don't let other people in the church speak ill of your pastor. Don't let them usurp the pastor's honor unnecessarily. Don't let the church members, pockets, individuals in the church gossip against your pastor. Spread poison against your pastor. If he's doing something wrong, hold him accountable. Because he's a believer and a member of the body. Do it. But if he's not doing something wrong, then don't let that poison spread. It was the responsibility of God's people to identify and warn those who had this attitude toward leadership. And even apart from a proper mindset on church submission and accountability, this makes sense, right? That Paul would place this at least in part at the feet of the people. See, because the leader, I guarantee you, is always the last one to hear about these problems. He will be the last one to hear about how everybody in the church is disgruntled with him. It shouldn't be that way. It should be a pocket of people are disgruntled. Hey, I've got a great idea. Let's go ask the pastor about this, right? Pastor's doing something that we don't, we don't understand. And so for the next several months, they'll just say, well, I don't know what pastor's doing. When it should be, hey, pastor, can I come into your office for a minute? Yeah, sure, thanks. What, what, what can I do for you? Well, pastor, you started this thing. We're a little confused. We're, we're, we're concerned that it's not biblical. You, you said this in your sermon the other day, and I'm not sure about it. I didn't want, I didn't want to spread gossip, Pastor. I didn't, I didn't want to start poisoning others against you. So, so can I just ask you, what, what's going on here? Can you explain yourself? Can you justify yourself? Well, no, I can't. Okay, now we've got a bigger problem. Now, now, now we need to get others involved. Now we need to start dealing with this in a, a proper manner. Or, yeah, I can explain that. You know, I probably did say that the wrong way. Or, or no, 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 you just, you just took what I said out of context. Remember I said this first? So, oh, okay, pastor, thank you. That clears it up. Now I don't have to gossip to you to everyone in the church. Now I don't have to spread the poison. Now, 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 I can, now when others start spreading the poison, I can say, no, 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 no. I asked them about that. 
And, and we cleared that up. Let me tell you what he said. Or how about this? Go, go ask him yourself. Right? Warn them that are unruly, insubordinate. Caution them. This is dangerous. If the church waits until the problem actually gets to the leader to deal with it, if, it, if, if they wait until it trickles up, the problem might very well escalate beyond control at that point. Don't let it get that far. So, uh, warn them that are unruly. Second responsibility, under church, mutual church accountability and submission, comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. This is the only time this word feeble-minded is actually found in the New Testament in the Greek. It literally means little-spirited. And it probably speaks of those who are deeply discouraged or in despair in the church. Now, I can imagine in the Thessalonian church, this would have been pretty pervasive at this point. We've already uh, read the scriptures where Paul is desiring to comfort uh, the people of the church that those who have died in Christ uh, will be, that they'll, they'll see them again and that they'll come with Christ at his appearing and that they won't miss the great return of the Lord and all of these dynamics because there had been many in the church who had been persecuted and perhaps many who had been killed for their faith. And so there, there's a place of discouragement here. One of the blessings and benefits of mutual submission and accountability is mutual love and support. As we read earlier, we rejoice with them that rejoice, we weep with them that weep, but we also seek among one another to turn the weeping of God's people into rejoicing through prayer, through love, through encouragement, to help one another get through the tough times get over the tough times, to see clearly in the midst of the tough times. The tough times are the times where it's hard to remember God's faithfulness. But the times where we need to remember God's faithfulness the most. And sometimes we need an outside party to remind us. God's still here. God still loves you. You can, you can get through this. Comfort the feeble-minded. Third, support the weak. A couple of different possibilities about what this might mean. I, it, it could simply mean um, those that are weak. Uh, that would somewhat overlap with the idea of feeble-minded. Uh, those that are in need, uh, weak physically or, or such. But I think the, the and, and I, I believe that uh, as we look in Scripture, the, the best interpretation of this would be uh, what we would call the weaker brethren. Supporting the weaker brethren. The idea of spiritual weakness in a, excuse me, weakness in a spiritual context. Paul teaches the concept of the weaker brethren in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians. The idea of the weaker brethren is that of men and women who do not fully understand, appreciate, or accept the liberties that they have been given in Christ. These men and women are not necessarily spiritually weak people. In fact, they can oftentimes be very spiritually strong people. They, they, they can have a very strong faith and a very strong Christian walk. But Paul is speaking of men and women who, whose understanding of God and His Word have brought them to a place where their conscience will not allow them to do things that are, in fact, acceptable for a believer to do. And Paul calls these men and women the weaker brethren. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Paul says this, He that is weak in the faith receive ye, 
but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let him that which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God has received him. So in verse 2, Paul speaks of the difference between a believer who says, who recognizes that he can eat all things in Christ. That there isn't any particular food group as the Jews would have believed that is unclean or unacceptable. Now in this case, we know he's not just speaking about Jews because this person, this weaker brethren, will only eat herbs. The Jews were at least willing to eat meat, right? Uh, they wouldn't eat anything pork-related or um, shellfish or those sorts of things, but they would still eat meat. But in this particular example, he says the weaker brethren would be one that believes he should only eat herbs, a vegetarian. And Paul's exhortation is that the one who recognizes his liberty in Christ, the one who recognizes, you know, it's okay for me to eat meat, I can do this, this is not a problem biblically, that he... Um, should receive the one that doesn't without arguing with him, without doubtful disputations. This is not a point of argument between you, and it shouldn't become a point of argument between you. And how is it that this doesn't become a point of argument? Well, he says in verse 3, that the one who is willing to eat whatever does not despise, reject, look down on the one that doesn't eat and say, look, this guy just doesn't understand the Bible. He doesn't understand that he can eat things. He's got real interpretive issues. He just doesn't understand what God has given him the power to do and just, 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 you know, whatever. And that, a lot of that goes on in the church today, doesn't it? The people that believe in, in, in deeper liberties just look down on those that would seek to, to live differently, that would seek before God in faith to walk a path of, you might say, more conservative. As a matter of fact, our entire church might run into this problem. People have stated such before. But he says, those of you that, that believe that you're walking in these liberties, or those of you that understand these, these things about God's Word, don't despise those that don't eat, just because you do. And then he says, conversely, the one that, won't, the one that doesn't eat, don't judge the one that does. Don't say, well, because I'm not eating these things. We're obviously better Christians than those that don't. Don't judge those that do eat. Now, this is speaking of Christian liberty. This is not speaking of open sin. And the problem in the church has come because what we would perceive as sin, others would perceive as liberty. And this is where these waters don't get quite as clear-cut as we'd like them to be. Because we would look at something and we'd say, you know what, them doing that in the church is wrong. And they'd look at that and say, you know, we, 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 would, we would see that as a liberty issue. And so there are issues like that. But we recognize, even in our church, that we, we and just to, to bring this home, to have this hit home, certain things that we do in this church. Your pastor wears a suit. We sing hymns. We use the King James Version of the Bible. Now, we have reasons why we do these things. And we believe, because of the reasons that we have stated, and many of you know, and some of you, if you don't know, you will know, because of those reasons, we believe that, that this is a, a, a good way to worship, a good way to meet, a, a good way to operate. 
But if we take some of these things and we turn them into dogmatic law, that if women come in pants or a guy just wears a collared shirt or a t-shirt, then all of a sudden we look down on them. Well, we have just crossed the line here. We have just judged those that eat because we don't. In that perspective, we would be considered technically the weaker brethren. And if, if, if we take that perspective as, as it stands. And notice what Paul says in the end of verse 3. For God has received him. God's received them both. And the condition is stated uh, the, um, in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. This is kind of the overriding principle. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You and I have the freedom in Christ to eat what we would like. We are not bound by the dietary restrictions of Israel or any other dietary restriction for that matter. But if a man in good conscience before God cannot eat something in faith, cannot bring himself to eat something without offending his own conscience, then it is wrong for those who recognize their freedom to exercise it at the expense of their brother's conscience or certainly to pressure their brother into doing something that is against his conscience. If you cannot, in honest and genuine good conscience before God, that is in faith, do something, then it is wrong for you to do it. In fact, it is sinful for you to do it because you have offended that which you think... And here's the reason. It's not necessarily because the action itself is wrong. But you thought it was wrong when you did it, which means you did it with intention to rebel against God. Right? If I said picking up hymnals, if I truly believed that picking up a hymnal was sin, everyone would say, you're crazy. Pick up a hymnal is sin. Okay. But if I went and I said, yes, I believe that picking up a hymnal is sin, and I picked up that hymnal, that means I was knowingly, purposefully doing something that I felt offended God. So the sin is not picking up the hymnal. The sin is my rebellious heart. And maybe I finally realize it's not sin to pick up a hymnal. And so now I can do it in good conscience before God. The principle of the weaker brethren. And this should overshadow every action of our church. Every interaction with one another. That we are not going to lead a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And we are not going to despise the weak or judge those that see liberty. Paul said those are doubtful disputations. Those are unnecessary arguments in the church. We've got enough to separate over without creating more things to separate over, right? So he says support the weak. Support them. Support them. Help them. Maybe they'll get a little stronger. Maybe over time they'll understand their liberties a bit better. And then they can transition from this is sin to maybe this is okay. But support them in that. And you know, if they, if they remain weak, okay. It doesn't mean that they're going to be a bad Christian. As a matter of fact, if I may put it this way, many of the best Christians I know are weaker brethren. They are. They're the ones that through study and in faith have decided that certain things aren't for them, that are their liberty 
and they have placed themselves under this, we might say excessive, but they've placed themselves under a standard and they're, they're better for it. They are better for it. Support the weak. Don't tear them down. Finally, be patient toward all men. As we consider the principle of corporate accountability and submission, it becomes apparent very quickly that in most circumstances, such an idea is a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Mutual support and accountability is a recipe for disaster. What takes the recipe for disaster and turns it into something that can actually work? Something that actually has power before God? Something that can grow us in Christ? And what it, what it takes to sh- keep this ship afloat is patience. As we're walking through this Christian journey, we remember that each one of us struggles with our own propensities towards sin, with our own areas of stubbornness and weakness, and we must clothe ourselves in purposed humility in order to interact with one another with the same degree of love and grace and compassion that we ask God to act toward us. Right? How much love grace and compassion do we desire of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, to whatever degree you ask for it, you ought to be willing to give it out as well. The struggles of other believers is not an occasion for personal pride. Oh, so much better than them. Oh, I've got myself so much more together than them. It's not an occasion for self-righteousness. Lord, thank You that I'm not made like that publican, right? Thank You that I fast and I pray and I give and I the struggles of other believers is not an occasion for judgmentalism it is an occasion for patience remembering humbly our own struggles both past and present such a corporate attitude takes true effort but it is no less than the expectation of God upon our lives and upon our ministry as members of Legacy Baptist Church. So let's review these principles. We'll uh, systematize these principles a little bit for our benefit this evening. Number one, God wants you under the authority of a local church. The whole idea of church membership in Western culture is the natural extension of the doctrine of church accountability and submission. Why do we have church membership at Legacy Baptist Church? Why do we have requirements for membership? For our protection and for your opportunity. It is your responsibility as a believer to willingly submit yourself to the church. This submission comes with many advantages. Support, accountability, an outlet for personal and for corporate ministry. These are advantages of becoming a part of a church body. But the church is a spiritual organism, is it not? It is a spiritual body. And because it is spiritual, it must be protected from spiritual corruption and spiritual error. A large and important part of that protection is found in your willingness to submit yourself to the church's authority and the church's accountability. The question becomes this, how can a church open themselves up to your ministry if you do not open yourself up to its authority? How can a church trust you and open up its ministries and your ability to minister to it and through it 
to you if you will not submit yourself to its authority. Churches must not blindly, cannot blindly trust that you are or that you are going to remain properly aligned with God's Word in doctrine and in practice, which is why the church must put in place protections to protect itself, to protect its integrity, to protect its recognition of, of understanding of doctrine and of practice. And that is why church membership is a necessity. Because when you become a member of a church, you are placing yourself under the authority of that church. See, the majority of people that come to Legacy Baptist Church are not members, which means we have no authority over them. We have no authority over them. But those of you who have submitted yourself to that authority, we do have authority over you. Now, some of this has to do with the basics of, of what it means to be a corporation in the United States and the Western world, and that's why church membership has become what it's become, because we have legal obligations as much as we have spiritual obligations. And we have to meet those spiritual obligations within the context of our legal obligations. That's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And so that is why membership is what it is. And we, as a body, must protect ourselves so the church asks you to join yourself unto it, to submit yourself to its authority so that it may then have the freedom to use your God-given gifts without jeopardizing its purity or its distinctives. And so we don't allow you to participate regularly in church services uh, corporate fashion if you're not a member. You can't come up here and sing specials or read the scripture or pray or those sorts of things because you have not submitted yourself to our authority. So we are going to withhold from you some of the privileges of ministry for our protection. For our protection. The solution, of course, being submit yourself to the authority of the church and then by doing so, we know that we are protected and we can open our, ourselves up to you in even a greater fashion. So God wants you under the authority of the local church. That's the idea of church membership. Protecting the purity of the church. Secondly, a healthy church is indeed an accountable church. Accountability to the teachings of the Word of God is membership in action, as it were. Now, here's what no one is advocating. No one is advocating an inquisition board. No one is advocating a board to spy on members and make sure that they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's. This is not what God says. This is not what God teaches. This is not what we advocate. But if we, as a church, don't have accountability, then simply put, we will, know, we will not for very long have a proper functioning church. Because let me ask you the question, where does compromise end? Where does compromise end? If, if there's someone in the church that is in sin and they are allowed to minister freely in the church, well, then someone else comes living in sin and they want to minister freely in the church and the church says, no, 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 no. We've got to draw a line there. But wait a minute. That guy's living in sin and he's a deacon, a pastor, he has some functioning role in the church, 
So why is his sin better than this guy's sin? Well, yeah, okay, we'll let you in. But just you, until the next guy comes, right? And now the church has been inundated with people living in sin. And, no, and, and, and there can be no accountability and there can be no discipline because the people that would do the discipline are living in sin. How can they discipline the one that, that someone else is living? And do you see the mess it creates? Where does compromise end? It, it, it's, it's playing with fire. It's a slippery slope. Pastor friend that I know, he's retired now, lives up north of the city, says it this way. He says, he says the slippery slope, when you get on the slippery slope of compromise, you don't stop till you hit the bottom. And it's true. If we don't draw lines to protect the church, how long will the church be what it needs to be for Christ? And so the church sets up expectations of mutual support and accountability and it gives the privileges of leadership and of ministry to those who are willing to submit themselves to it. Accountability is essential to a healthy church. Third, first, God wants you under the authority of a local church. Second, a healthy church is an accountable church. Third, a healthy church is a supportive church. We spoke about two facets of support, comforting the feeble-minded, those who are spiritually discouraged, and supporting the weak, those who have um, a uh, different understanding in their spiritual walk of their obligations before God by faith. The old adage goes, if you ever happen to find a perfect church, just remember the moment you join, it will no longer be a perfect church. We are all of us imperfect. We all struggle with elements of our walk with Christ. The church should never become a place of judgmentalism. The church should never become a place of superiority complexes or of exclusivity or of cliques or of judgmentalism. We are not here to look down on others. We're not here to blame others. We're not here to guilt others into action or into inaction. We contend for purity. We do this at all costs which is where accountability and submission come in. But we are here to rescue the perishing, to restore the wounded, to nurture the weak. The church of God ought to be a place of spiritual rest for the weary, a place of spiritual preparation for the strong. Our assembly should not be like the Wild West, where it's every man for himself and only the strong survive. (laughs) Have you ever seen a church like that? It's every man for himself and only the strong survive. Bring your six-shooter with you because you might need it. Watch your back. You never know who's behind you. Our assembly ought to be an oasis of joy, comfort, truth, and love. God wants you under the authority of a local church. God, a healthy church is an accountability church. A healthy church is a supportive church. Fourth and finally, a healthy church is indeed a patient church. While you are in your mortal body, the spiritual life is said to be a marathon, a walk, a journey, a battle. But do you know what the spiritual life in this mortal flesh is never said to be? It's never called a destination. In this mortal flesh, the spiritual life is never called a destination. Now we have a destination, make no mistake. But we'll realize that destination in a resurrected body we'll realize that resurrection when we pass from this life to the next. After death or rapture, 
we will experience the blessed destination that we are, if you are born again, guaranteed through faith. But in this life, to put it simply, no believer ever arrives. If you were taking martial arts, there would be, you'd get to a point where there was no belt left to earn. If you were studying a particular discipline, you would get to a point in that specific discipline where there's no degrees left. You've, you've gotten them all. You're the one that's writing degrees now writing the curriculums. You're the one, that's, uh, you're the one that is, is, is advancing your field. You are at the pinnacle of your studies. But no one in this life will ever find themselves having arrived as a believer. N- you will not wake up one day and say, wow, look, I'm in the image of Christ. Wow, great. I'm here. What, what's next? No believer ever arrives. And so, because no believer ever arrives, that means patience is key. That means you need to be patient with your pastor as he grows, as he learns, as he seeks to understand his responsibilities and balance his family and his ministry and and his own personal walk with Christ. And it means you need to be patient with one another as we are learning what is right, learning to be obedient to the faith and learning to submit ourselves one to another in love. And as we become this... As we do this, we form into a body that God can use to reach this area. As we recognize our place and as we work together, the whole does indeed become more than the sum of its parts. So that we, as the body of Christ, can do great things for God. And that's where God wants us. And I pray that that's where you want us as well. And may God help us to become that spiritual body that He desires us to be. Let's pray together.